As Pastor Zach said, we're finishing our study of these ten traits that are characteristic of the church that we see in the book of Acts. And ten traits that need to be characteristic of the mission church here in Issaquah. I wonder how many of you, we've gone through nine of them, I wonder how many of you can uh, remember the nine things that we've talked about. (laughs) I couldn't do it, but I have a cheat sheet, so I'll just use my cheat sheet here. The first is the empowering of the Holy Spirit, that we need to be empowered by God's Spirit. Next is to be committed to one another in community. The third is that the Bible drive everything that we do. Bible teaching, God's Word, be at the heart of what we do as a church. Then prayer, generous giving, serving, worship, sharing the gospel through missions and evangelism. And then last week, Pastor Zach talked about intentionally pursuing growth in our faith to to have an intentional discipleship process and so today we're going to add the the tenth and final and that is as pastor zach already alluded to persevering through suffering and persecution boy that sounds like fun didn't it (laughs) now because the church is people these are characteristics it's not just true of us as as a as a congregation these kinds of things we've been talking about these past weeks should be true of us individually, that, that we ourselves are seeking daily the empowering of the Spirit to be committed to each other in community, to be centering our life on God's Word, to let it be our guide for how we live, praying, generously giving, serving, worshiping, sharing the gospel, seeking to grow in our faith. And then we come to this one, which is a bit challenging to think about persevering through suffering and persecution. Now, first of all, I just have a difficult time with the concept of persevering to begin with, okay? Persevering is something that is challenging. I just like to get something done quick and easy and check it off and go on to the next thing. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about day after day, year after year, continuing in these 10 things that we've been talking about. And that's challenging for us. Eugene Peterson has a book that the title of his book captures the concept of perseverance in a wonderful way. The name of the book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's challenging for me. Perseverance is like holding out your arms. You know, at first it's easy, but if I were to ask you to hold out your arms the whole time of the message, by the end of the message, we'd all be in trouble, right? It gets hard. It gets difficult. And that's what persevering is like. And then, even worse, he's talking about faithfully persevering through suffering and persecution. And and so this is a challenging thing to think about, but it is exactly what Jesus Christ said his followers would have to do. In Mark 13, Jesus said this, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Apostle Paul agreed with Jesus. He writes to his young pastor friend, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says this, Indeed, all, and that's us, right? Are you included in the word all? Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so, it's a challenging thing for us to think about. The book of Acts begins, as you recall, in Acts 1-8 with a command that Jesus gives, and it becomes not just a command for us as followers, it's an outline that summarizes the whole book of Acts. The other week we read it together out loud. I'd like to invite you to do that with me also again as as, uh, 
Pien puts this on the board for us. Let's read together out loud Acts 1.8. Ready? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, most of us probably really get this concept that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to share the good news of the gospel with others. We're to tell others about Christ. And that's what this is saying. But there's something you also should know if you don't already know it. And that's when you look at Acts 1.8, the word that is translated, you shall be my witnesses. The word witnesses is a Greek word that we get one of our English words from. And that is the word martyr. Now think about that for a moment. You could translate that, you will be my martyrs. Think about the ramifications of that for just a moment. Following Jesus always involves suffering and persecution. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor John. I, I thought coming to faith in Christ would make my life better and easier. Well, it does make our life better. Our sins are forgiven. We have hope. We have joy. We have his peace. We're reconciled with God. We have his power at work in our life. That's all better. But it doesn't make it easier. In fact, following Jesus Christ demands suffering and persecution and hardship. It actually makes our life harder. But that's the very thing that God uses to bless us the most. You might recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pastor Zach read a moment ago from that wonderful passage, Hebrews 11, in the beginning of 12, all these great men and women who did mighty things, and yet most of them were martyred, most of them were persecuted, most of them suffered, just like Jesus did. And to follow Christ, he goes on to say, as he went into chapter 12, if we want to follow Christ, we have to follow his example. And you notice the example he was talking about, it was Jesus taking up his cross and dying. And that's the example of Christ we're to follow, if we're to follow him. And so persecution begins right off the bat in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, the apostles, Peter and John, are brought before the Jewish council, and they're commanded, stop telling people about Jesus. Then the next chapter, chapter 5, the apostles are this time arrested and beaten, and again commanded, stop telling people about Jesus. And then we come to chapter 6. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 8. I think it's 914 if you want to use the, the Bible there in the pew. As we look at Stephen, who becomes the first martyr in the sense of the first Christian to die for his faith. As he is, uh, is, is uh, martyred here in Acts 6, not only does he die, but this launches a robust widespread persecution of Christians throughout the whole rest of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, let's look together at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. This is going to kind of be the, the heart of kind of what we're going to be studying. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, as we read our teaching text. And we'll read other parts along the way. It's kind of a long passage, so we're not going to read it all. But let's start. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that is, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, this is just Christians from different places around the, the, the world outside of Jerusalem, arose and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We pray for us. Oh, Father, I don't like, I don't like people not to like me. I don't like challenges and hardships. I don't like sacrifice. I certainly don't want to be persecuted. Will you help us grasp and deal with this difficult reality that this is an important characteristic of Christ followers and his church? In Jesus' name, we ask your help through your spirit. Amen. All right, let's be seated. Let's kind of dig into this. So at this point... Stephen launches into a long speech, or what you might call a long sermon. And I'm just going to kind of fast forward and summarize it. It's probably what some of you like to do with me right now. If we could just fast forward, Pastor John. Okay, yeah, you guys. So, so, so he, he's going to say some things. And, and, and first of all, look at verse 14. And, and notice that there are two basic charges they make against Stephen. They say, first of all, he's telling the teaching of Jesus, that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. Well, first, that's not true. Jesus spoke metaphorically of his own physical body as being the temple, representing the temple. And then the second charge against Stephen is that he was saying that, that Christ taught and Christians were, were going to do away with the customs of Moses. Now, understand, the customs of Moses is a reference to the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses. You remember the Ten Commandments and all of that kind of stuff with the temple. This is what he's talking about here. And so Stephen is going to address these two charges, but he's going to do it in reverse order. Beginning in verse 2 through verse 43, he gives a brief history of the Jewish people that they probably knew pretty well, but he lays it out beginning with Abraham. You remember God's glory appeared to Abraham, and even though Abraham and his wife were getting older and they got really, really old before this began to be fulfilled, God promised that they were going to have many descendants and he would give his descendants the land of Canaan, the, we call the promised land, because God promised to give it to his descendants. However, he goes on to say that these people, these, these descendants of Abraham, rejected Joseph and sold Joseph as a slave to Egypt. And so for 400 years, these descendants lived in Egypt. The family joined them in Egypt and they grew and they became oppressed by the Egyptians and they were used in, in abuse of slavery and then God raised up a savior to go and to deliver them and that's Moses and how did the people respond to Moses they rejected him repeatedly first of all as a 40 year old man when he went and saw an Egyptian abusing a Jewish slave he defended the Jewish slave and he killed the Egyptian and he thought that would that would 
spark a sense of the Jewish people realizing that he was going to lead them out of Egypt. But instead, they rejected Moses. He fled to the backside of the desert in Midian and lived there for 40 years until God appeared to him in a burning bush and said, I want you to go back to Egypt and deliver the people. And he did. You remember he led them out in the great exodus that the Bible talks about. And how did the people respond to Moses during that time? They rejected him again. In fact, when Moses was on top of the mountain getting this law, the people down in the valley were rejecting him. Look at verse 39 of Acts 7. Stephen says this, But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, talking about Moses, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. (laughs) That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of of, of what their hands had made. So Stephen's point is that when you look back in the history of the Jewish people, they had a history of rejecting the leaders that God raised up to, to bring them salvation just as they had rejected Jesus Christ. And so, not only did the Jewish leaders um, reject Moses, they did not obey the law. They started worshiping pagan gods. In fact, he recounts how it got so bad that finally God in his anger brought the Babylonian army in to destroy the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple itself, and lead them into captivity. And for 70 years, because they were the ones who did not keep the law. And then, beginning in verse 44 through 50, he turns to the first charge, and that was about the temple. Now, God is the one who gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle that then David's son Solomon uh, built a, a permanent temple in Jerusalem, a place where people could come and worship God, a place where there could be uh, intercession between sinful man and holy God. However, notice Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 48. Look at verse 48 in Acts 7. And he says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. In other words, Jesus was right to compare his body to the temple because the temple was never intended, going all the way back to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, the temple of God was never intended to be the final revelation of God where God lived. It was never intended to be the final place of mediation where sinful man could be reconciled with holy God. It was Jesus Christ who would fulfill that. And and so you might recall that when Jesus died on the cross in the temple, the holiest of holies, the place that the the high priest could go in only once a year on the day of atonement to the mercy seat and seek mercy for their sins, The curtain that separates that most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God himself when Jesus died on the cross to show the temple was never intended to be the ultimate place where man was able to come and be reconciled in relationship with God, that Jesus fulfilled that. And so they were the ones who were wrong to restrict God in a way, even the Old Testament prophet said, God should never be restricted to just being in the temple. And so in the midst of this, Stephen makes two important points specifically about Jesus Christ. First, he says that Moses, who gave the law, 
also predicted the coming of the Messiah. Look with me at verse 37. He said this. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. In other words, the one, the prophet Moses, who, who gave them the law, prophesied that a greater prophet would follow. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And, and that the, the, the law of Moses was never intended to be the final word from God, and, and that Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of that. And then secondly, he, he shows that the, under, the, the history of the Jewish people shows that Christ was to be the fulfillment, not just of the law, but even of the temple itself. And here's, here's what I mean. Jesus, when he came, did not do away with the Old Testament law or even the need for the temple. What he did was he fulfilled it in this way. When it's dark at night, you turn on a porch light so you can see because it's dark and you want to follow on your steps, you want to see what's going on, so you turn on your porch light when it's dark. But when the sun rises and the light of the sun illuminates that area, you don't need the porch light anymore. It doesn't mean that the porch light is, is, is bad or undone in any way. It's supplanted. In fact, you can have your porch light on during the day and not even realize it because the sun is so bright. The Old Testament law and, and, and the temple were like the porch light. But Jesus is the rising of the sun. It's the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. And so now we come to the place in his message where Stephen makes an application. And Pastor Zach, this is something you and I should pay attention to maybe about. How, how do you make an application? So he's laid out his case. He said, this is what you see in the Old Testament. And here's how it applies to you, the Jewish leaders. Look with me at verse 51 as he makes his application. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised heart and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels but have not obeyed it. Wow, try that next week, Pastor Zach. <laughs> Throughout history, the Jewish people were the ones who rejected God's law and, 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 and did not honor the place of reconciliation in the temple. They, they worshiped these false gods in different places. They were the ones who were guilty, not Stephen and not what Jesus Christ said. Now, how did they respond? After the message, uh, Stephen went to the door and the people went out saying that was a great Message, Pastor Zach. Good sermon today. No, look with me at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Then Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So it, they didn't receive it very well, I would say. <laughs> now, having gone through all of this comes the application of my message today as we look at this. Here's where it applies to us. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. <laughs> Here's what we take away. First of all, this. We are part of an unbroken chain of God's sovereign work in the world. In other words, what we're going through as we experience hardship, as we go through persecution, we're part of something that goes way back before us. Stephen reached back through the centuries to Israel's long history to show that God has been at work even predicting the coming of the Messiah centuries before it ever happened. And at the very moment Stephen was speaking, who was at work? God himself. He looked up and he saw the heavens open and there was the Son of God standing next to God himself. And so this has two ramifications for us, two implications for us. The first is this. God is sovereign and his purposes will be accomplished no matter what. Earlier, Gamaliel, one of the men in the Jewish court, tried to warn the others in this, the Sanhedrin about re trying to persecute Christians. Back in chapter 5, he said this, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. God. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to his warning, did they? Were they able to stop the advance of the gospel by killing Stephen? Obviously not, because it spread across the world. Friends, there are going to be times when we feel like the world is careening out of control, and there are going to be things going on in our life that are going to be scary, and we're going to have concerns. We're going to see Christianity growing to be less popular and more stigmatized in our culture. And we're going to feel like the church is losing the battle. But the war has already been won. And so I, 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 I want to go ahead and take the time to read Isaiah 40. Isaiah gives us a perspective of how to view everything that we see in the news and in our life. And he says this, Isaiah 40. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Of course, the implication is nobody, right? God didn't need someone to tell him how to do it. Surely the nations, think about the nations. Nations like the United States. Nations like China. Nations like Russia. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. You don't worry about the dust on the scales. They don't weigh anything, right? They're so insignificant. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And then skipping a couple of verses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Friends, nothing we will encounter, nothing that we will face is outside the sovereign rule of God. 
and his hand is over all, and we can trust him and need not worry about anything. Now, the second impl implication is this. God's kingdom and his purposes are what really matter. Sometimes people look at church and they think, ah, is it really relevant? You know, am I learning things in church that's helping me in my daily life and relevant to me as I'm trying to do the things I'm trying to do? And you know, friends, that is never the question. The question is never, is God relevant for my life? The question is, is my life relevant to God? Because God is the one who is moving forward the course of history. He's the one who is at work for great purposes in the world. And what really matters is, am I meaningfully a part of what God is wanting to do? Am I using my life for that kind of work? Now, I'm no great, I'm no great scholar on prophecy. I'll let Pastor Zach answer all those questions you have about the end times and how it's going to all unfold. He'd be happy to meet with you after our meeting today and tell you that. All I know is when I read Daniel and I read uh, Revelation, I get a sense that God has a plot line for history. And he's already determined how it's going to end. And he is absolutely in control of it. And I want to be a part of that. I want my life to be used for those purposes. In fact, God is going to judge and evaluate us according to that. Not was he helpful to us, but would, did we do in our lives things that he could use to move the needle in the work of his kingdom? Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, this, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, remember he's talking about our life, what we do in our life, if that survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. You know, some of us are going to make it into heaven and we're going to smell like smoke. <laughs> we will have just got in the door, maybe. But the sad thing is, I want to look back at my life and see, you know what? God was able to accomplish through me what he was trying to do in my day and in my generation where I was. I don't want to look back and say, I wasted my whole life. Nothing I spent my money on, nothing I spent my time on, nothing I invested in lasted. It all got burned up in the judgment of God as he evaluated how he used me in life. And so, that's the first thing to think about, okay? God is at work, this long history, this unbroken chain that we're a part of. The second thing we see in this is this. We are called to willingly sacrifice for Christ. To willingly sacrifice for Christ. Now notice, God did not spare Stephen, did he? He allowed Stephen to die an unjust death. And he didn't spare him. Jesus is very clear about this for his followers. In Luke 14, he said, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, mother and his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross, that's a place of dying, that's what the cross is, does not carry his cross and follow me, 
cannot be my disciple. And skipping to verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Do you notice the repetition of the word cannot? Following Jesus always has a price to pay. To follow him will always cost the followers of Christ. You'll notice in, verse seven, uh, in chapter 7, verse 58, the very end there, it says that Saul, and you guys know Saul gets a new name later. He becomes the Apostle Paul, right? Saul is there. And in, in, in the early part of chapter 8, he goes on to become a persecutor of believers. The next chapter in Acts tells us that Paul gets what we could call arrest warrants to go and arrest Christians and persecute them. So he gets these arrest warrants. He heads off to Damascus, but Jesus appears to him in a vision, this bright light from heaven, and, and Jesus says, Paul, who are you? Saul, Saul, who are you? why are you persecuting me? And, and he's blinded by the light. And then he's led to Damascus, and he's there for three days fasting and praying and, and just waiting, and he's blind. And God appears to a Christian in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And he says to Ananias, I want you to go and, and heal Paul and give him back his sight. And Ananias responds to God, and he says, Hey, God, I, I think we had a bad connection there. <laughs> Did I hear you right? Did you say Saul? You do know that he's the one that's persecuting we Christians, don't you? And in Acts 9... God responds to him, the Lord said to him, Go, for he, and that's talking about Paul there, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Did you catch that last part? That showed Paul how much Paul must suffer for the sake of his name. That was part of Paul's calling that was part of God's plan for him. And Paul goes on to have a long ministry, planting churches. And later in his life, after many decades of, of service, Paul looks back over his life and he writes to the church in Corinth and he shares the kind of suffering that he experienced. In 2 Corinthians 11, 11 he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. There are people who are boasting, and so he's, he's going to indulge in that and show what it really means to follow Christ. Um, with far greater labors, far more, and here it comes, imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That is the testimony. That's Paul's faith story. The testimony of what following Jesus Christ cost him. He knew from personal experience what he was talking about when he told Timothy, all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted in Christ Jesus. So we may think, yes, following Christ will make our life better, but it's never going to make it easier. It's never going to make it more comfortable. And the persecution is only getting worse in our world, in our day today. It's a challenging thing to follow Christ. 
We give our money to support his work. And that's not because you have extra bags of money in your back closet with nothing to do with it. We give our time in serving him. Time that is a sacrifice of other things we could be doing. We risk our reputation when we share the gospel because there are going to be people who are going to think we're, we're ignorant, biased, hate mongers because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what it calls. This is what we were reading from Hebrews. That's what it calls for. Followers of Christ willing to give their life. It says the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the gospel. And that's our calling. The third thing we see is this, that God then uses our trials for good. Now, Stephen's death may have seemed like a tragic loss. Here was a great church leader who was killed and that his loss would hinder the work of God's kingdom. But look in chapter 8 at verse 1. Let's read that again. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And there is the wonderful purpose behind it all. Scattered, that is like seed being sown. They were scattered. God used this death of Stephen to create a, a great persecution, which created a great dispersion of Christians running for their lives. And it resulted in the widespread sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God uses the challenges, the setbacks, the painful things in our life to advance his kingdom and his agenda. The question for us is, do we really believe things like Romans 8, 28, that says all things work together for good for those who call the, love the Lord and are called according to his purpose? Do we really believe that's true? And, 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 the, and the challenge for us is to trust him. And, and there's one final point, and it's this. We see also that God's glory is actually worth our sacrifice. It's interesting to me that Stephen's message began with God's glory appearing to Abraham, but at the end of his message, he looks up, and with his own eyes, he sees the glory of God. The heavens open, Jesus standing next to God the Father. Look at, at verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you know why Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, I believe, right then? He was waiting to welcome Stephen home. He was ready to present Stephen to God and to confess Stephen because Stephen was confessing him. He saw the glory of God. He saw the splendor before him. Some of you are familiar with Jim, Jim Elliott. Uh, or his widow, Elizabeth Elliot. Any of you know who I'm talking about? You've heard the name Jim Elliot. Okay, many, many of you do. This is back in like the 1950s. These young, five young men wanted to take the gospel into the heart of the Amazonian, Ecuadorian uh, jungle to a, a tribe there that was like a Stone Age tribe, never heard the gospel. And, and so they began to make contact and they landed their plan on the beach and all five of them were killed. All of them martyred for their faith. Out of that, because of their death, a way opened for them to, sh to be able to hear the gospel. And, 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 and the families went. Elizabeth, the, the young widow of Jim Elliot, was a part of sharing the gospel. And she wrote a book about it in 1957. And the name of the book is Through Gates of Splendor. And, and here is that, that title 
comes from an old hymn, We Rest on Thee. And here is the wording of that, that stanza from the hymn that it comes from. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, there it is, gates of splendor, victors, we rest with thee through endless days. In other words, through the struggles and the sorrows and the pain and the persecution of life, we enter through gates of splendor, victors to the reward that God has for us for all eternity, as Pastor Zach talked about just a moment ago. The disciples struggled with this, struggled with all they were giving up to follow Jesus. In fact, they talked about it, and in Matthew 25, Peter answered him, speaking to Jesus, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Doesn't that make you sad? You just feel sorry for Peter. You, know? <laughs> you ever feel that way, kind of a pity party? Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. It's worth whatever it costs us, even if it costs us our very life. That's a challenge, but we can know we're part of an unbroken chain of God's sovereign work in the world that we're called to willingly sacrifice for Him, that God uses our trials and suffering and sacrifice for good, and that God's glory is worth that sacrifice. And most of us are not experiencing great persecution. You might be anxious if you share the gospel at work. Maybe someone will report you to HR, or you might lose a client. You might worry what people are going to think about you. They might think badly of you. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are being seriously persecuted in life-threatening ways and are losing their lives. We can help in a couple ways. We can give. And, and our network of churches has, a, has a, a process we can give to help people around the world. It's called Send Relief. If you ever want to Google Send Relief, it's a way you can give to specifically help particular people in particular places. There's organizations like Voice of the Martyrs, something Cindy and I have supported for some time in a small way, and it certainly helps believers around the world who are being persecuted. So we can give to help people who are being persecuted for their faith. And we can also pray for them. 